Welcome to the Regular People Podcast. I'm Wade, and today I'm joined by Leslie. Hi. Hi. So um, before we get started, I've been told, gotten some feedback from listeners that they would prefer it if episodes were a little bit shorter. I know the last few have been like three hours. So I'm going to keep this one under two, and probably the next several under two and see how that feels. I personally like listening to long-form stuff. There's a podcast episode I'm listening to right now that's five hours, uh, but I guess that's not everybody's thing. People have been even been telling me to do one-hour episodes, mm. and that, I think, is like too short. I think the nice thing about the podcast format is that you don't feel constrained in the conversation for time. You can say whatever you want. Like You don't have to try and chop up what you're saying or super condense it. Like You can just be at, at ease with what you need to say because you know that you've, you've got all that. There's no like cap, but I guess this one there's going to be a to our cap, if that's fine. So, Leslie, tell me a little bit about yourself, about who you are. Let the listener get to know you a little bit before we start talking about our subject. One question I always go after is, what does your last five years look like? You could think of that as work life. You could think of that as how you've changed as a person. You could think of that as your interests. Well, it's helpful to think back into the last five years because that... Probably included the end of my college career and then moving here to Milwaukee for my first job outside of college. Where'd you um, move from? I moved from Whitewater, oh, Wisconsin. Okay. Which, Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Janesville. And, and then, then you went to Whitewater for college? Yep, at UW-Whitewater. I went into an art major first and then I kind of freaked out because I was only 18 years old and I didn't understand how college was set up. I thought... It was just like high school. Like I remember calling like my admissions counselor or something or a counselor and asking them if the day was set up like an eight hour day like high school is. Like I had no idea. (laughs) So completely unaware. Get there, realize there's no photography major and I wanted to get into photography. There's only an art major. Okay. So I'm sweating at this point um, and I choose to go into art education because I thought it'd be um, fun to be you know, like a kindergarten teacher, be a, um, some sort of art teacher. That would be cool. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, well, the arts are dying in the schools. So maybe I would be better, you know, because we go to college to obviously get a degree to then be employable. Right. Um, so I'm like, I need to be employable and I don't think art education is an employable status, um, anymore. And I was freaking out because, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like on the other end. Um, for, you know, three, four years from now. Um, so I went with a cushy job and it was early childhood education. So oh, okay. I still took art as my minor. Nice. Graduated, got a job here in Milwaukee, moved here in 2018. Did they still have like plenty of photography classes though at Whitewater or not really? You know, I didn't end up taking one. Oh, okay. I did not end up taking, wait, did I? No, I didn't. I didn't even end up taking a photography class. That's hilarious. I didn't know that happened. So there you go. (laughs) That was the reason I um, didn't go to college until quite recently. First, like seven, eight years, I didn't go to college because I couldn't decide on what to go for. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's so many things I could go for. I don't know which one. Mm -hmm. And also, I didn't have any money. I didn't want to be in debt. Yeah. Didn't have good enough grades in high school to Mm -hmm. get any like scholarships probably. Mm -hmm. So I just didn't go. It's a tough choice. Yeah. We, you know, force young children, literal 18-year-olds, 17-year-olds to try to think of 
a job yeah. that will make them employable five years from there and right. take on thousands of dollars that they may not be able to pay for. Yeah, it is kind of ridiculous because it's like you have to somehow know what the field looks like when you haven't even had any experience working in it. Like you don't know what jobs there are because you... Yeah. The only job you've had is maybe a high school job, like mm -hmm. working at a restaurant or yeah. mall or something. Yeah, you're just like a shithead little high schooler and <laughs> yeah. you don't know what... Like, how are you work. supposed to know that you really should have gone into computer science if you want to be, like, maximally employable? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is a cool field that I, I kind of wanted to go for, computer science, but mm. I didn't. Still could, I guess. Well, to just kind of end is moved here. Um, it helped that I had friends here and throughout college, mm -hmm. I would come and visit my friends who lived in the River West neighborhood um, of Milwaukee. Yeah. And that's how I got familiar with Milwaukee. I liked it. And so when the opportunity came to now find a job, I wanted to go where my friends were. If you grew up in Janesville and went to um, college in Whitewater, how did you get those Milwaukee friends? Did they also go to Whitewater and then they moved before you did or something? No, um, they were actually friends from Janesville. Interestingly, they were my brother's friends. My brother's like four years older than I am. He okay. had these cool friends. I was like a little sister and wanted to like budge into all of his <laughs> life happenings. You know, my brother became uncool to these friends and then I became cool to these that's, friends. Uh, so <laughs> that for your brother? Yeah, so... That's how I got to know them. Oh, okay. Do you just have the one brother or do you have... Like, I have one brother. Multiple siblings? Okay. Yeah. So then what job do you, did you get out of college? I got a job at um, a nonprofit and it's federally funded. We're early Head Start and Head Start programs, which is a federally funded program. You know, we have students who come into our school. There are teachers there in classrooms, but we also provide... Um, home visiting services and that's what I do. I'm a home visitor. I do mm -hmm. parent educating through home visiting. I go to homes, knock on doors of families every day. I meet with the same 12 families for a year or more. It's a voluntary program on the family's part um, and meet with families who have children between the ages of zero and five. Is it fun or is it um, not so much fun but more like rewarding? <laughs> As all teachers say, it's rewarding work yes <laughs> yes it's very rewarding because yeah. i work i work with uh many backgrounds of people that i feel in my everyday life i'd never come across yeah i work with so many different nationalities religions cultures right. languages and then that's all just for those families are going to the one school so yes it's, so it's not like you have to go super far away to different areas just all within one school district that you're visiting these houses yeah, we do kind of have a range of where yeah. we can go and visit families. For example, I just drove over to Greenfield today, which was like a 20, 23-minute oh. drive from my office. But yeah, we, we can't go all the way to like Waukesha. We're not going to, I don't know what other, like faraway suburb, but I think we stay in Milwaukee County, which Milwaukee County kind of encompasses a lot of those. Yeah, um, it's pretty big. Mm -hmm. So then you, you've had that job ever since. Yeah. yeah. Any other jobs you've had or just the one? like outside of college yeah, yeah yeah just this one. Oh, okay is this something that you even do over the summer do you still visit the families or like most mm -hmm. education jobs 12 do month you... employee oh wow yeah so then what do you do when you visit these families all sorts of stuff um it really depends on the child and the family's needs um because we focus on child development with the families Again, like the, a lot of families, they have refugee status. They're new to the country. Mm, okay. Um, and so I've literally had visits where I'm sitting with a family in their home and 
they hand me a stack of their mail because they don't know what's junk mail and yeah. what's actual important mail or they get mail from they they see it's from their school their older you know child school yeah and they may not know what the letter's saying so oh that's not just a, a refugee problem that's i think an everyone problem <laughs> you get so much mail that it's like <laughs> do i have to pay this or is this like... <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so again it just every day looks different every family's needs and child's needs look different like are you doing at home teaching too or is it like testing or just surveying i'm just wondering i know it's probably changes from family to family but like what is the the bulk of the 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 work it's the purpose of it really yeah that's a good way to put it yeah i would think of it as like intervention services working with a family who has children to be a support for families and parents because parents need support you know whether you're whether you're income eligible or not like parenting is hard work and parents have questions and parents you know need to rely on someone from time to time Mm. um and you know there are cases where families who do have more of an income may have more support than those who are low income and our program is a low income eligibility um program and pretty much the purpose of our services is to just boost parent-child engagement, attachment, um, because we truly believe that the parent is the first and most important teacher in their child's life. Um, And we kind of support that that idea in in how we engage our, our families, the information that we give them. Once their child gets to age five, we can't be servicing that anymore. Age five is a cutoff. So like we may help them find options and that's the cutoff for head start or that's the cutoff for like your specific job the cutoff for head start and our job because we're under head start right um so helping the family find different options in the school in the um community for schools if they need it um do all sorts of stuff like that but really head start is to get like the the program head start was created in order to give low-income children a better chance, you may say, I don't know if that's the right word to use, but limit the achievement gap yeah. of, you know, the the families who have higher incomes, the children, you know, have out, outcome, like uh, learning outcomes that are stronger than their low income counterparts, the children from low income houses, they show yeah. not as great school outcomes. So we fill in with activities and engagement with the parent and child um kind of boosting that boosting their learning before they get to kindergarten or before they get to k4 so then does does that program does it depend on parents a lot too like do these parents have to be have to have like really open schedules to be able to do this like they obviously they can't be at work when you're when you're there yeah that's we meet with a lot of moms i hardly meet with dads only oh, okay dads are the ones that are usually working yeah really with the different cultures nationalities dad's usually the one that works and mom stays home with the children so it's yeah. the mom i'm usually meeting with because i just imagine that that kind of has a implicit barrier to entry as well not just um because, like, obviously, if you you want to be joining Head Start, then it's low-income eligibility, like you said. But then you would also need to have, make sure one parent is at least not working. Because perhaps if you were, lived in a low-income household, both parents would want to be working. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have your kid in Head Start, then you can't do that. Mm. 
Yeah. Are, are there any families where you're meeting with maybe like a, a nanny or caretaker or non-parent figure? There are times where, yes, I've met with grandparents. Grandparents, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's rare because we do... We, you made a great point. Wow, I'm gonna take that home and think about that. <laughs> think yeah. about that, because uh, yeah, there. Sometimes I feel like our jobs would become obsolete if, in this country, people were actually paid livable wages. Right. You didn't have to work two or three jobs. Yeah. To support your family. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that's like one of the main reasons. Well, maybe not main. I don't know, but one of the reasons why you've got less success for low-income kids is because they don't ever it's like less option to spend time with their parents because their parents need to be so busy to even maintain Mm -hmm. the family's money yeah although i mean on the other end of it you've got the classic story of the rich dad who's never home because he's such a you know workaholic yeah i mean that's more of a choice thing he doesn't need to be spending all that time because he's got so much money anyway but then the the kids are unhappy because they never see him but Hmm. With, like, a low-income family, that's, like, by necessity. Like, your parent yeah. needs to have two different jobs and yep. never be home. Mm-hmm. So, what was the degree you got in the main one? It was The main one was early childhood education and development. And development, yeah. Was, okay. So, that was one of the, the topics that you yes. said you wanted to talk about today. The two topics, uh, we've got early childhood education and development and also labor power and unions. I mean, I feel like we've been talking about that one a little bit, so let's continue talking about it. So, um, why did you want to go for the early childhood education and development what is this focus on what, what did you what did you learn in your degree did you have to do any like big projects or studies um well answer any of those questions you don't have to answer why, all of them. <laughs> why I, well why i chose again to go from art education to early childhood education was just how, if i was going to be employable or not right. you know that's yeah that's why kids are forced into college anyways is to become employable yeah. at the end Okay, so it was it was mainly for the employability, but did you have any like background interest in it already that made you want to do it aside from just getting a job? Like, did, yeah, I'm trying to think what did also. Did you want to work with like kids or low income families or like help six year olds learn or? Yeah, because I didn't. I feel like when I was my college self making this decision, I would want to bet that it wasn't all about being employable. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think the fact that I wanted to be maybe a kindergarten teacher, art teacher before then made me realize, like, I think I do like kids. I didn't babysit a lot, though. I was the baby of the family. Um, So it's not like I had any, you know, of my childhood taking care of my siblings or cousins that were younger than me. I feel like somewhere in there, I... I adored children right. in some aspect. And then I and then once I got into the program, I think I started to adore children a lot more. Yeah. Like what are the important factors of, of a child's, I guess, proper, healthier, like the best way you could develop a child? Like what are the important things to have? Hmm. I mean, I've probably a good relationship with your parents is, is one. And yeah. Money is probably another one. Yeah. I would definitely say from what I've learned is social emotional skills come first in the in the developing years of a child which mm. is usually between 0 to 5 is the most foundational and 0 to 8 like extending another 3 years would be mm. also another soft spot of development for children so social emotional skills yeah i imagine a lot of that comes from interacting with peers yes in your yep. with your job are you doing anything to like try and get these kids around other kids their age like put them in clubs or something like that or sports or 
do you try to get them interacting with other kids? Yeah, um, thankfully, our agency, our our yeah, I would call it our agency. We do play groups. We call them socializations. We do them once a yeah. month. But at the same time, learning can happen in the home, and the child has siblings. The child right. has cousins that come over. Social emotional skills and and interacting with kids their age or you know siblings a little older or younger than them is still helpful yeah um it just takes also an engaged adult to help with things like their playtime and sharing um being more strategic being more creative on how a parent can engage in those situations to help teach skills teachable skills teachable moments so um, socializations are great and like having those play dates are great but you know you can teach those skills within your own home between siblings this might be a um, putting you on the spot question but do you have an example of a a good skill that should be taught to a young child that you're thinking of like a social emotional yeah skill yeah. um yeah something so simple as two kids playing right beside each other and one kid has the car um, that the other kid wants and the other kid goes and reaches and grabs for it. That could be a teachable moment where you teach the kid who's grabbing for the toy if they're of age and it's appropriate to teach them this because sometimes if they're young, they don't understand fully what you're trying to say to them. Yeah. So you change your your strategy. Yeah. Um, but if it's the right child, right age, you know, you can teach them using, you know, your verbal communication like, hey, Johnny has that toy right now. When Johnny's done with that toy, you can play with that toy. But for right now, let's go play with something else. Yeah. Um, and that, that has to be constant. Has to be constant, you know, directing them to something else. Just teaching them that skill. That's just something that came up Okay. right off the cuff. Something yeah. easy. <laughs> um, do you ever run into problems where maybe the parents um, are also lacking these social emotional skills that they ideally would be teaching their children 100 percent, and that's what we talk about a lot well not a lot but that's what we talk about in just being the roles that we're in of how you know recognizing that our parents may not be able to teach these skills to their children because they may not have these skills themselves yeah maybe changing our strategy as parent educators or changing our perspectives as parent educators too yeah so then do you think you're like you're teaching the parents more than you're teaching the children is like teaching the parents to teach the children or is it maybe 50 50 teaching children directly and teaching parents directly yourself yeah Yeah. i think in the ways that we engage with the children their children we can model yeah and then the parents obviously the effects of our modeling like oh that worked out well for you why doesn't why doesn't that work out for me yeah having a conversation around that yeah we deal with a lot of parents who deal with mental health issues Mm -hmm. So then you said you see like 12 families over the course of a year or mm-hmm. more. Do you like gauge these families on improvement over the course of that time? Do you keep notes of how they're doing and what they mm-hmm. still need to learn? Yeah, we have different assessments. We do yeah. little data points. Yeah. Do you have like a idea of like readiness, like this child, like the Head Start program really worked for them, but not for this this other kid? Like, do you keep yeah. that in your head? Yep, we do assessments for the child you know the different developments of learning the different the five the five or six different domains of their learning what are they they are cognitive communication language fine motor gross motor personal social maybe one social emotional maybe another one or personal social and social emotional could be together 
What's the difference between fine and gross motor? Fine motor is what we do, you know, with our hands, writing, picking things up, coloring, buttoning, you know, self-help skills, being able to hold a spoon, hold it the right way, put it in your mouth and like the food's not going out of your mouth. Yeah. All of those little fine motor skills, gross motor, you know, are big, big muscles, oh, okay. jumping, climbing, walking, running. So do you have like, I don't know, a, a guideline sheet of like where a three-year-old should be at? What, what, what should a three-year-old be able to do with their hands? Like a four-year-old and a three-year-old, what's the difference between what they can do with their hands? Do you have anything like that in... Yeah, yeah. I and mean, you learn a lot of that in yeah. a program like early childhood right. education. Um, and we do have, you know, you can find those easily online. Yeah. We also do have, I wouldn't, I don't think like evidence-based is the best word to use, but we do have help assessments that are like averaged out. Like they yeah. have been researched and been used for dozens of dozens of years yeah. with, with, assessing a child's development and how they're progressing these assessments that you make do you share that information with the family yeah okay yep so then they like how often do you do that they're kind of like progress reports i how i like to give examples to parents like if i'm like oh we do the help and it does this i just like to say i was just telling this to one of my families today we just started our program today so i got to start meeting with families today that's cool um and i explained to this parent oh it's kind of like a progress No, not all new families. You still have some carryovers from before? Yeah. Okay. I was just explaining to her that, you know, this this assessment, just think of it like a, a progress report, you know, how your child's doing in these different domains, what their strengths are, and then be able to see, like, what else, you know, what are areas where they could improve. Hmm. Do you ever kick people out of the Head Start program? Perhaps if they go a year without any improvement or something like that? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. Mm-mm. Do you keep them in the program... Do you keep watch over these families longer if maybe they're not improving? Like you said, like a year or more. Would you extend it to two years or three years if you still are waiting to see improvement with the family? Yeah, the program is just voluntary. Parents can gotcha, leave gotcha. whenever they want. But I've had families, I just said, the last program year that ended, um, you know, I, just, I said goodbye to some families that I'd had two and a half years with just oh, okay. because they, you know, enjoy the program. and. Right their kid enjoys it and they notice that their kid is learning um, and improving. And so they just continue to, to stick with the program. So then these, fa- these families could stay in for the full zero to five years, just normally. Yeah, they, don't. they could. Okay. One question I have that sometimes comes up with like kids I see or like kids I've, I've known like my nieces or like my friend's little brother. I remember in when I was younger, that like I notice they're like three, four, or, like five, and they just never talk. Mm. Um, what's do you know off the top of your head, maybe what the like ideal age is for speaking? You, I'm interested now. What do you mean by they don't talk? Like maybe they're just super shy and they just don't even like they don't mm-hmm. even speak like at all. Mm. Or maybe it's like a three year old and the way they talk sounds like they should be far better than they currently are okay you know i see a three-year-old who can say some like full sentences and i see a three-year-old who still like says nonsense words and like can't Mm -hmm. can't put a sentence together Mm -hmm. like what's the ideal age that you can speak a full sentence yeah i would say around two years old ideally a child should be saying three to four word sentences yeah It, it is telling i mean i see every day the true equation of 
parent input and child development output. output. Yeah. Like, I see it clear as day. So then um, if the parents aren't communicating enough with the children, then the, com- the children themselves aren't yep, very communicative. 100%. Um, so how does that work with like the families you said, maybe like refugees or families who don't speak English or speak very little English? Then who's the really the source of English learning for these kids? Is it you? Because yeah, or Coco Melon or Coco Melon. Okay. Honestly, I've had some some parents who came from Malaysia, and their children are incredible English speakers now. Um, and they learned a lot from like ABC ki- or PBS, yeah. PB- PBS. Wow. And some things like surprise the parents. So like now they're saying this and I don't know where they got it from. And yeah, it's kind of funny to see how Coco Melon is shaping our earlier generations. I don't even know what Coco Melon is. <laughs> it's like, a, I think it's on YouTube or it's its own weird. It's like some animated kids yeah program yeah okay. i just remember watching a lot of sesame streets and like like teletubbies yeah as a kid yeah coco melon is 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 it, is it geared for children it's it's is it trying to be educational yes oh, okay. yep 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 have you heard the in the re in the past over the pandemic there was a funny children's song going around that was um johnny johnny no papa <laughs> Have you heard that? Or I don't know I, if I okay, have, but that's right. from Coco Melon? I think so. Okay. I think so. Yeah. Maybe I'd have to like hear how it goes, but yeah, I don't know. Just based Eating sugar. No, Papa. Telling <laughs> lies. No, Papa. Okay. Well. Yeah. Not ringing a bell, but yeah. maybe I should look yeah. it up. If I had any young kids in the room, they would be they would going it. crazy right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> Another question I've got just about um, childhood education in general. Mm-hmm. Is it is it drastically different to teach kids versus teaching teenagers or adults do you think i mean yeah just due to the age right um and how you address people yeah you know i'm not gonna talk to a 18 year old like i would talk to a four-year-old but maybe in the ways of being a teacher and educator like how you approach something being being strategic and how you deliver information how you scaffold you know i feel like scaffolding can be the same whether you're teaching a four-year-old a 14-year-old or a 24-year-old could you uh describe scaffolding scaffolding is when you recognize um let's say i'm just working with a child and you recognize this child gets this certain idea this certain concept and you realize okay if you understand this and you've mastered this you can go on to the next step you scaffold them to the next okay um so real so in education just realizing being an educator not pushing them to a new concept or try a new thing too fast Mm. observing where they're like meeting them where they're at and they're learning now yeah working them slowly recognizing where their strengths are scaffolding them to where you think they could go next which is just a it's another step up it's not five steps up yeah you shouldn't go five because that's not going to go well for you or them you just go to the next step but you have to be intentional you have to be observant Um, but i think that that's the same across the board if you're again teaching different age levels but definitely how you're addressing people it's going to be different with the ages yeah yeah i just wonder like is and the it, concept, sorry, and the concepts. Yeah, yeah, like the the content that you're teaching them, of course, yes. is is different. But I imagine it, uh, there must be some sort of difference in like the idea of responsibility that the students have, because if you're 
maybe a high school teacher or professor mm. at college, you're really not going to accept any excuses whatsoever yeah. for like late work or not turned in work or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that would have to be very different if you're teaching first graders or kindergartners yeah. because you can't expect them to be, to have formed those habits yet of like, or like knowing like something has to be done. I mean, you don't really mm. assign homework like that in first grade, do you? That has a deadline. It's more just in-class work, but mm. still I imagine there must be some point over the course of a child's education where teachers start to thinking of that bad behavior as being the child's fault rather mm. than, I don't know, the situation that they're in. Yeah, you make a, you bring up a good point because we talk a lot in early childhood education about if there's a behavior being shown, just think of, is there is this a need below yeah. the surface? Um, for example, a child is biting. Um, that's a bad behavior. We always call it a bad behavior. That's a bad kid. Obviously, we don't want children biting. Yeah. Um, but there's a need behind that. That child isn't biting just to bite because he's having fun. There's a there's a there's a need behind it. It's a communicative need. And when you bring up the idea of like a high schooler not completing their work, um or biting. I think or biting. <laughs> um I think it could be the same thing of there is a need behind this behavior. There there's a reason behind this behavior. Yeah, because in in my view that's basically just how it is with all human behavior is that really none of it is They're under your control. They're communicating something. Yeah, it's some, some like, maybe not expressed in the most healthy way, but yeah. some thing that you could you could help fix, you could tr- mm-hmm. try and help this person. And, but it seems like, sadly, at some point in a child's development, that, people, that adults just kind of, in a way, give up on them, just thinking, like, from now on, all your bad behavior, I'm just going to punish you for rather than try to fix Mm -hmm. and i feel like that maybe it's around the middle school age where that happens Mm. but i guess you wouldn't have you wouldn't see much of that transition if you're just working with very young children yeah i wish i could speak more about it because i have no experience teaching anywhere like even five and up nothing like zero to five is my bread and butter two and three my bread and butter (laughs) like two and three is that the most common ages that you deal with yeah yeah what's the youngest kids that you have right now i have a 10 month old 10 month old what do you even, okay, what do you do with the 10-month-old? Exactly. That's what parents ask me. <laughs> what do I do with my child or my baby? It's but, just looking at me. But yeah, but I mean, like, like, what do you do to stimulate learning or like the Head Start program, like when they're so young, like mm-hmm. just play music or, because they, they can't understand anything that you're saying at, mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. can they? You know, you can still engage them with activities, but I mean, it's called developmentally appropriate practice. You yeah. want to recognize where they're at in their development. I mean, there are activities for yeah. a 10-month-old. Yeah, I guess maybe at that age, it's less about trying to teach them concepts, but more just stimulating their, like, curiosity or, like, having them play with things and, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being Letting en- engaged with stuff rather than... Yeah, explore. Yeah. That's a, a, a child's first and most important job and only job is to play. And a lot of parents don't understand that. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think the, the purpose of, of play is? Because I feel like... If you think of more like ancient cultures or more tribal cultures, it seems like the type of play that you do there is a like direct mimicry of what the adults are doing mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Like mm-hmm. they are practicing hunting or they're practicing, yeah. they're practicing all the things that they'll be doing as an adult. Yeah. But and I still see some of that nowadays, like when kids play house or whatnot. But I feel like it's much less it's much more detached nowadays like the kids play from like 
it doesn't seem to me like it's a readiness for adulthood. Like, mm. I don't, I don't see how playing with your truck is, is getting you ready for adulthood. Like, like practicing tag or like some sort of game where it's like physical activity and it's readying, readying you for, I don't know, going mm-hmm. off to hunt mm-hmm. if you're, you know, living in 8,000 years ago or something. Yeah. How do you think play actually is, is beneficial and like, what is it actually doing for a child? Probably a very open-ended question. Yeah. I think play can encompass a lot of the domains, like the developmental domains that I mentioned earlier, you know, hoping that there is an engaged caregiver there to facilitate play, to make play much more rich with Mm. language, where a caregiver can notice all of the teachable moments and add in information show a child how to do something new and then all of a sudden the child's doing it and it's a new skill. Yeah, it's very good for social interaction. Yeah, I think it, play encompasses all of that. Play yeah. is then also led by the child. You are following the child's lead. You are following the child's interests. Mm. You're not, you know, you can always like play set bet- up play. between play. adults and children. You mean you're following the child's lead? Like if you're playing with your own child, you're following the child's lead? Yeah. That's what you mean? Okay. Yep. I don't know if this is even accurate, but... I kind of feel in a way that as a child, the creativity of playing is rewarded. That's like what you want out of your children. But it is basically not rewarded at all as you get into adulthood. Like, it's like yeah, everything right. you were practicing as a child, don't need it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I, don't know, I, I feel like we could probably do that better. But. I have this spiritual guide that I like to follow. Um and she talks about that, how we're very limited as adults. Like, we don't think we can play. Yeah. And we totally can, and many adults yeah. love to, but it's yeah. it's not really something that's part of, like, the adult working life. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> get into, get into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the labor power. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That That's one thing that I'm, I try to do with my time, if I can, is is work less, play more, even if it's mm-hmm. not going to make me money. But Or just learn how to think think more playfully yeah through your work obligations you know that could that could be thinking more creatively if you want to put it that way yeah so yeah one one question that i have is um does the head start program work does it achieve what it wants to i think it does um because i've spoken to some parents who have older students um, or older children who are now um, in grade school, and I'm speaking. I'm thinking of a family in particular, and they didn't know about our program. You know, specifically our agency and what we do um, back when they had their first child. But now that they've put their second oldest child through the program, they can see incredible um, differences. And who knows? You know, that could. Unless we measure that, you know, who's to say it was us? Who's to say it was this program? But we also, we have all staff meetings every year before we start our new school year. It's kind of like a big employee party, really. Um, And we have keynote speakers. And I remember one of the years, like two years ago, we had a keynote speaker who went to our agency and spoke, you know, just as who he is now and who he remembers. He still remembers his teacher from our agency he just recounted all of his good experiences with it. You know, again, who is to say that this short amount of time spent in our program is 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 what builds people for future success? But there yeah. is now 
um, a lot of scientific research coming out mm. um, that is showing that the first five years of a child's life is Important. quite foundational. And that's that's one of the reasons why I put this down is yeah. I'm in it. I see it every day. Um, I do think it's important. Um, we do get trainings on the brain. We do get trainings on brain development. We do get trainings on, you know, from actual medical people coming to talk to us where they see a child's brain that is stimulated, meaning like they are being talked to, they are being played with, they are being, their needs are being met on a consistent, timely manner versus a brain of a child where those things are more neglected. And you can, it, it's there, you yeah. know, you can see it. It builds the brain or it doesn't. Yeah. How long has Head Start been a thing? Um, 19, I'm getting, I'm going to get the year confused with the, um, the establishment of my agency because I get them confused, but I'm, it's in the 1960s, I know. Oh, really? Like, I, I'm going to say 1965. I feel like I want to look that up or something, but it's in the 1960s, I remember. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, I'm always just slightly dubious of, like, like you're saying, like, how how can you be exactly sure what is causing the thing, especially with a lot of uh, like psychological research. I've talked about this before, but there's like a really big um, bias in our culture toward nurture rather than nature, mm -hmm. um, or like toward the effect that you can actually have on someone. When a lot of cases, these um, studies that people show to demonstrate that don't actually necessarily back up what the person's trying to say. So yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that the Head Start program works. I'm just always curious about how can you be sure? Because for instance, that, um, th that family that you're describing of, they have the one child that they didn't put them in Head Start and the second child they do. I mean, it could have also just been a factor of like them learning about Head Start and the willingness to put their child in it. That itself shows that the, the mm. parents are more engaged and more active yeah. in that child's development. Yeah. And it would have been that way whether they actually put them in Head Start or not. Mm. Just the fact that they're thinking more about it, mm -hmm. being more engaged. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's not to say, like, I feel like it's definitely only a good thing to put your kid in, in Head Start program. Like, what is it going to harm them? Mm -hmm. If anything, it's going to benefit them. Exactly. Yeah. I was thinking that too, you know. And at the end of the day, what we're doing is is adding to. Yeah. And even if you add to in small amounts or big amounts, you're still adding and that adds up. Yeah. You know, so I think there is some credibility to yeah. the success of a Head Start program and yeah. what its aim is. Is that something that's um like in all states in the U.S.? I would definitely think that Head Start is in every state yeah. in the United States. Mm. You can find a Head Start program. Yeah. Do you think... um. I don't, I don't know how to phrase this question. I guess what I'm thinking is, do you think that's the best way, the best way to spur a child's development? Would it be better or worse? Or, I mean, you just have to speculate here, I guess, to perhaps maybe just pay the families. <laughs> like if it's focusing on uh, low income families. Oh yeah. Would it, would it might not have more of an impact to just make them not low income anymore? Oh yeah. But I mean, who's, who knows? That's a great, I mean, I've have, started but. thinking about, all of that maybe a year and a half ago again i had mentioned earlier i feel like our jobs become obsolete if you know there are actual strong livable wages in this country yeah. where the parents can actually afford necessities mm -hmm. that they need and then some and you know they didn't have to rely on certain governmental assistance because they could afford things yeah. they wouldn't have to you know they could afford daycares 
they wouldn't have to rely on, you know, a Head Start program, which doesn't cost anything. Head Start doesn't yeah. cost anything. Yeah. And bring up a good point, because I remember reading in my labor book that I just um, finished, there was a teacher in there sharing, I can't remember the quote verbatim, but she said, I feel like I would do more of a justice to these children if I organized their parents. Hmm. Makes me think of, of that question of like what would be the best way to stimulate these children their development whether it would be like a ubi or like livable wages or head start programs or free daycare or whatnot is um a different example not even related but related in my mind is the um saint jude's children's hospital for Mm. uh, like children with cancer yeah that's also free Mm. um if you have to send your child there and people donate. It's a, like a nonprofit organization. People donate a bunch of money, like millions, maybe even billions of dollars every year. I'm not exactly sure. It's definitely in the high millions. Except the thing is, saving one child's life in St. Jude's costs upwards of $200,000. So if you compare that to lots of other child saving or life saving charities, such as um, fighting malaria, it's literally $1 per life saved. So then, while it is a noble thing to save a child's life that has cancer, in a way, it's like you could be saving so many more lives if you spent that money on, mm. in a different place, mm. like on malaria nets. You wouldn't be saving American children's lives if that's what matters to you, but you'd be saving children's lives. Mm-hmm. They just live in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I guess usually trying to figure out like if whatever the thing is, if that's the most efficient way to do it, or if there'd be a better way. But. Mm. But for um, Head Start, do you provide any uh, like material goods or like, because you said that um, if like these parents don't have access to, um, if like a low income family, they don't have access to things that kids might need. Does Head Start help with that in any way? Or is it just um, spending person to person time with them? Yeah, we, um, I couldn't say this across the board for all Head Start programs. I just right. know that our nonprofit does this where we do books for kids and so Mm. every month a child gets three books okay i just just today picked out three books for every child of mine you pick them out we pick them out they give us brand new books and we can go see what they have you know they have board books they have books for older kids they not older as in like a a, you know first grade or second grade reader because that's not our kids but longer books more words it's more of a storyline than a board book would be so i got to pick out some so yeah we give books over the pandemic it changed things a little bit we gave out you know diapers and wipes because these are very Mm. expensive items usually sometimes we give formula but not often we'll get donations from people you know we can a lot of the material things we can give are donation based so things like hygiene products, maybe food products here and there. It's not a consistent wave of items, but yeah. we do have them. And I guess other material things, I not necessarily things like books, but we have nurses on staff. So if a family doesn't have a clinic like a medical home, we can do important screenings like lead screenings, making sure oh. kids in Milwaukee get lead tested because that's a huge issue. And that's free too? Yeah. Wow. And then we also do hearing um, and vision screens, you know, um, to make sure obviously a child needs to see and to hear to learn. Yeah. So we need to make sure these children can see and hear. So we do those screenings as well. That's that's actually really interesting to know that they actually provide um, screenings like that and 
I guess like medical services, at least some of them mm-hmm. for free. But I have another question though. Is it difficult? Is it like a difficult process if you're a family wanting to sign up for this? Or is it just kind of a simple opt-in? Do you need to fill out lots of paperwork? It's definitely harder if you have a family who doesn't speak English. Yeah. Because Which, that, that seems um, paradoxical to me because you would think those are the families that need it most. Hmm. If, if the family doesn't speak English, you would think they would they would need it most for their kids, the Head Start program for their oh their kids, but it would yeah. be the hardest to sign up. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just hard i mean imagine you you're the parent educator and you come to my home and i hardly speak english and you yeah. have to go through this you have to talk about the release of health and medical information and why that's important why you're signing it yeah and how to explain that in the most basic english that you think that they you yeah. know can understand do you have any translators that work at your agency we we have unofficial <laughs> translators so i'm mean? just trying not to get frustrated by the certain aspects of my job that oh, okay. are absolutely justified to be frustrated over <laughs> but we have we've hired some parent educators who are bilingual speakers in the communities that we need most yeah, um, so like burmese and corinne and a lot of people will go to them for translations but they're they're, that's not their job title and like you're just adding more extra work for them yeah um and that just happened yesterday um where and it happens daily where these people are expecting and of course they want to help they're not going to say no but i i don't like to see them being put in the position Mm. where their generosity is being kind of taken Yeah, yeah exactly and it took a long time. It started over the pandemic where we actually got a con. We started contracting with something called Language Line, which is something that, you know, clinics, health clinics will use. You can call in. It's a subscription that our agency pays for. You just give them the information, say, I need a current interpreter. They're like, okay, hang on the line. And then so that's helpful. Yeah, that's nice. That is. But it would be it would be nice to have like a, a physical person that's actually their job title and yeah. not just try to like push more work onto people who are already have a caseload and to their own work responsibilities. That happens often. I guess that's just like the eternal struggle of of trying to be a good person. Like you <laughs> you want to help, and then it's like you could help in so many ways, and everybody needs your help. It's like yeah. At some point, you have to say no. And yep. Mm-hmm. It really sucks though. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to go back just to, I remember you asked me that question about the paperwork and it's lengthy. And I think the worst part is for parents to wait because it's not like just after they finish the paperwork, okay, you're in, it has to go through a few hands and bureaucratic steps. And even the employees like me get upset because it takes a long time. There's, you know, not easy flow along the system sometimes. It takes yeah. a while to get back to us. So it's 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 a lot of paperwork in the beginning, but it's over. But I think the wait and, you know, parents not fully understanding, like, no, just because you signed your name a bunch of times doesn't mean you get a spot right now. Like, we start services tomorrow. Sometimes parents think that. Like, we start services now. Oh, next week. It's like, no, there's a whole thing here and again if depending on if you're talking to an english speaking person or not or english language learner you know it's hard it's it takes more patience for you to just explain what the process is in the best way you can to someone who may not fully understand at all yeah do do any of these like applications or paperwork do they pass through your hands at all are you a part of approving someone or whatnot for the program or is that 
totally it's like not, higher up stuff right, yeah. it's our enrollment team um but i do the paperwork with the families oh, okay. in person um and then i hand that paperwork to the enrollment team oh, okay. they make sure everything's you know filled out as it needs to be they do the things on their database and you know like and they're in the system now yeah then i get that in for that paperwork back so then how did that work the, the like call a number saying that they want to fill out this paperwork but they need assistance and then you come yeah yep, yep, oh, yep. Okay. and a lot of the families who join us um they hear from word of mouth that's one of the biggest mm. ways that we are known in the community is word of mouth community members talking to community members yeah and so usually parents will be like i have this family here's their phone number and i'll call them we have like a program interest form first which is just it's it's of like the starting part where it's just asking simple bio questions really and then from there you can be like okay i'll call you next week or i'll call you in the next few days to do this bigger paperwork oh. uh, when we can find a time maybe meet in person or do over phone whatever works best for you so hmm. kind of stuff like that what age does preschool start is that after five years old yeah like, preschool would be before like kindergarten because kindergarten is like five or six so then are any of the kids that you the families they have are they like already in school like preschool some of them some of them can be in programs while we still service them but they can't oh, okay. be in another head start program while we serve they can't do they can't get double services because we're yeah. head start so they can't be in a head start program while we also doing head start with them yeah you know they can go to like a you know daycare mm. or be in a preschool program how long do you spend with these families uh 90 minutes a week oh, i'm in okay. there for an hour and a half so like just one day one day per week mm-hmm. mm, okay and how much of your day is spending time with families versus being at the office? Oh, thankfully, I get to spend more time with families than being in the office. <laughs> when once this all starts, once the program year starts getting yeah, getting that, rolling, that's like the part of your job that you actually yeah. My office is for. the community. My office is other families' homes. Um, yeah. And I would say, like tomorrow, I'm gonna have three visits, ninety minutes each. So a good half of my day. Or more is spent out in the community, in the homes, driving around, driving to and from. I've seen a lot of Milwaukee this way. I've seen yeah. a lot of crazy stuff. That's the other thing, too. I guess I wouldn't have been able to explore Milwaukee as much, I feel, if it wasn't for this job. Like, I've been to a lot of the nooks and crannies of Milwaukee. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't really uh, do that very much. Just go to the one place mm-hmm. every day. Mm-hmm. That is an aspect of a job that I think would be cool to have is mm-hmm. being able to go to lots of different locations, even mm-hmm. if, even if we're still within one city, get variety. Yeah. In that way. I guess like, that's kind of nice too. You could spend time with these families probably. Do you get attached to them at all? Or like get to grow to really like the, the families that you're spending time with? Yeah. Um, I was, yes, I've been invited to some graduation ceremonies of parents and I've been invited to like families, birthdays, been invited over for dinner um sometimes i get served food while i'm there because you know families are just really hospitable and they they like that you know there's someone here in the home to help them or their child yeah i again i don't think i would in my regular everyday life come across so many diverse people who have walked different lives than me if it wasn't for this job and i think it's just helped me also Grow as a person. <laughs> that does sound like a really cool job, but didn't you say that you're looking to switch careers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can I ask why? You know, it, it's unfortunate. My management, my su- my direct supervisor, 
is so incompetent, inconsiderate, ineffective, and impersonable that she's made me lose, like, all respect for her. Yeah. And makes me embarrassed that I'm being led by this woman. And I just want to go, when are you retiring? Because I'd love your job. (laughs) Um, Because I feel like I'm telling her how to do her job. I'm reminding her how to do her job. She, She is, like, dropping the ball every single day wow and that seems to be the standard obviously if a leader is doing that in your workplace they're setting the standard and it's certainly set because the bar is pretty low for my co-workers and just this work in general really yeah really it's challenging in that your experiences with the families right like that can be challenging with like parents dodging you parents not engaging parents just being challenging in general like that's challenging that work is challenging but i'm not being challenged in my other aspects of this work i'm not my my manager doesn't sit across from me and talk to me about my parents or um, talk to me about my family's how things are going isn't asking me updates about them, isn't asking me how I can think differently about this situation, isn't challenging me in those different ways. Like, I'm not Mm. being challenged anymore. They have really instilled a level of mediocrity, you know, mediocrity and complacency. Mm. So those are a lot of reasons with my specific agency. Um, And then some, it's it's just, it's very frustrating. Um, And then secondly is, you know, as I'm sitting there, trying to find other jobs in similar fields, you know, we're not paid what we should. Not a lot of people are in different fields. Yeah. And education is, education and the social, social service workers are like one of the most exploited in this nation. And it's really, it's really sad to, to see, to sit across from a screen and look at the salary that I'd be making. And it's just not, it's not okay. And yeah. I, I would, in a heartbeat, be an early childhood educator in a classroom or, be, or continue being at this job if it paid what it should. Mm. Yeah. And it's sad to hear that there's so many incredible people who are moving from education because there's not much there keeping them around or incentivizing them to stay. Yeah, they don't feel appreciated. So those two big reasons is pay and just the BS. I've been... <laughs> through with the agency that i'm at with this specific supervisor it's insane i heard a um well read a quote like a few weeks back that i thought was pretty good it it goes people don't quit jobs they quit managers oh yeah Um, oh 100 (laughs) yeah i don't know if that's entirely true because i've definitely quit jobs where i liked the manager but yeah it's probably mostly true yeah it's probably the majority is the is the leadership yeah yeah they don't instill any sort of creativity I've seen myself and I've seen in other coworkers, you know, we bring up new ideas and it's just like this level of, I wouldn't say apathy, but just not excited. Mm. Is there any sort of, because you do assessments or whatnot, progress reports of the families, do the families get to do progress reports of you? Do they get to have like a Yelp review of, of the person who's coming out to help them out? Like just to make sure everybody's doing a quality work. Is there any way that you get looked at? If you're like doing enough for these families or not? Oh my God. Yeah. So 
I remember when I first started, when we went on spring break for the week, I remember my supervisors called every family and checked in, which I think is good. Yeah. Um, but I don't see that anymore. Was that and the same supervisors? Or nope. When I, when I first started, I had a different supervisor and she was incredible. Mm. And she actually just left in at the end of August. She was in a new position. She was no longer a supervisor at that point. She went back into the classroom. So she left our agency. And supervisors are actually supposed to go out, I wouldn't say on a regular basis, but more than they are doing now to observe you yeah, and make sure you're doing a good job. And this one goes out to you, to my supervisor. She observed me virtually over the pandemic with one of my families and then never went over her feedback with me during our one-on-one supervision. She never did. Hmm. She never told me. Yeah. What you could improve. Yeah. No. It's like she completely forgot, like she does with everything else. But I think that's a good thing. I think I know that if a family isn't feeling you, they will call a supervisor. They do it often. Oh, okay. Could be for many reasons. And it's not, unless it's like really bad of what you did as a parent educator, you're fired. But if it's, you know, more so just preference based and it's not that big of an issue of what you did, like you didn't harm them, you didn't. Yeah. say bad and things to them it's just like them. the family yeah. just didn't feel comfortable with you whatever yeah. like you'll just they'll be switched yeah there's no there's no re- like reviews of and we are review like we can do our own reviews at the end of the year usually of yourself of or ourself of, each other? Okay. of ourself and then our manager does a review of us too but that doesn't mean anything that's the other thing that i don't like about this job is from day one i noticed that there's no there's no reward for doing great work mm-hmm. and there's no reprimand for doing bad work. Yeah. And that's all because there's no set standard of quality. Oh. If you don't set a standard of quality and you're not constantly or continuously monitoring for that quality. Yeah. Just the person do who does great almost. is just treated the same as the person who does horribly. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. There's no incentive, you know, you're not incentivized for doing good quality work because at the end of the day, we're also not being, we can't get raises for individual work. No, we get raises across the board for things like cost of living adjustment. So everyone gets a raise. But like, if I'm doing a great freaking job, I won't get a raise. Yeah, that sucks. So it's like, why, what, what, (laughs) what motivates people then to do a great job? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So dead in the water yeah that i i don't know i haven't lived in that world much but that seems like maybe just a problem in general with like the social work world is doesn't pay all that well and then it's kind of relying on like you were kind of talking about before like the exploitation of like good people who want to be doing it because they think it's helping people mm-hmm. so they're putting their all into it and then you've got some other people who work there who are just you know mm-hmm. working there not really caring much mm-hmm. and yeah both people are treated the same by yep. the employer mm-hmm. both are equally as valuable even though one is obviously doing yes m- much better job yeah have you heard of the peter principle principle it's a idea that you get promoted up to your level of incompetence so you're doing a job you do a good job at it your boss promotes you then you do a good job at that new one and your boss promotes you and you get promoted up to the point where you no longer know how to do to, do that job mm. so this this is the supposed reason at least like i don't know if there's any actual studies behind this it's just an idea but it's a nice one i think a bad idea like a bad good idea if that makes any sense a depressing good idea hmm. where <laughs> managers 
and supervisors and higher-ups are so often incompetent is because they were good at their lower-level jobs, and then they kept on getting promoted, and now they're at the point where they no longer had, no longer know how to do that job because mm. they got promoted too far. Mm-hmm. And then the, the format of so many companies is such that you it's really hard to fire people, kind of hard to, to demote people too. So as an employer, you kind of get stuck in this trap of like, oh, they're really great at sales. I'm going to promote them to be a manager. They suck as manager, but I can't fire them. So we just have a shitty manager. Mm. So I think that's what, mm-hmm. may, maybe what happens a lot with maybe manager or supervisors like yours or like some mm-hmm. some that I've known where they, they only knew how to do it, but not that job. And the higher ups, I feel also then grow into areas of detachment from what the actual work is oh, like and then what it's like being a worker in those roles and being told what to do yeah or having decisions made for you yes that's definitely part of it too one other thing i wanted to ask you about is uh you've you mentioned your agency multiple times um but i'm wondering how this works is your agency like separate from head start but they like do some of the head start work or like are they a head start agency is it like like a is it like they're a franchisee of like head start where like you can have your own domino's pizza but you're still under the title of Domino's Pizza, but it's like your own building. Like, what is your agency? Mm. Is it not itself Head Start or is it Head Start adjacent? I'm just confused as to what the difference is. I am too. Um, <laughs> I think it would be more Head Start adjacent because it's it's confusing when I listen to our family um our director of family services talk about it. She always says, we're a charter, we're a nonprofit, we're a Head Start program. It's like, what is that? Yeah. You know, is that all wrapped up into one package? Right. So it's like a Head Start program. So like, is Head Start like a a government funded education education program program. that just pays certain, certain like companies, I guess, to do that like broad category of work that's just helping early childhood development and like every single little company across the united states is just a head start program yeah i think they'll have their own like names because i know mps has head start programs in their schools like some some mps schools will have but they're not affiliated with your agency no okay no so everybody's doing their own separate thing under the category of head start yeah, and there's okay. also, but there's Head Start guidelines they have to follow. They're right. not able to just like go off and do their own thing with Head Start money. Yeah, you have to follow the rules of Head Start. Um, but there's different Head Start programs here in Milwaukee. Yeah, one just down the road, and the building could obviously look different, have yeah. different teachers, obviously, but it's still the same, you know, basic services that are right. provided. Okay, that makes more sense then. Okay, yeah, I was just. I was, I was wondering about that. So I, th- I think we've probably talked about that topic for long <laughs> enough. If you want to move on to sure. talking about labor power and yeah. unions. Yeah. I mean, I think both of these, I think we're start. Right. That conversation was get, touching that yeah, a was. little bit, which I knew it would. <laughs> I knew we'd get there. Yeah. How do you feel about this? Are you um, pro-union, I'm guessing? 100%. <laughs> yes, I am. Yeah. Is um your agency, is it part of a union at all? It should be. Okay, but it's not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is it um, about labor power that you feel strongly about? That's a huge question. It can have um, a huge answer. I yeah, it may. It, it just might. <laughs> um, 
I feel so strongly for unions. I'm going to start off with a personal note because mm-hmm. my father is still union um, and I have been able to reap the material benefits of being in a union household. Like, for example, I just turned 26. Really? And, Me too. Well, wonderful. <laughs> well, like two days ago. Not so wonderful as like once I turned 26, I was kicked off of my father's yeah. union insurance. But just, just think of that. 26 years for a child of a worker who's in a union and that extended to the entire family so i was raised around it my dad had conversations with me about it once i started becoming a working adult and i started realizing like oh yeah health benefits are important you know 401ks are important working conditions are important pay is important and i started to see that you know a lot of those good benefits come a lot from union jobs statistically Union jobs are paid 30% higher than their non-union counterparts. It's that high of 30%. So that's my personal note why I think labor power and unions are important because I was a product of that. I, my dad was able to afford a comfortable life and I was able to live that life. Um, I was able to go to college because he had a great paying job that provided that. And additionally, I've been having just reflections about the world and I think a lot of the income inequality we're seeing in this current day has definite ties as I'm now reading to the to the gutting yes to the gutting to the gutting of unions you know eliminating labor power among the workers taking manufacturing jobs that were unions you know workers back in the day fought hard for for the factory jobs that they had to be good and to be unionized and then the the capitalists took them and put them overseas where they could pay low wages um and be under different working laws where they could provide sub horrible working conditions Um, suicide nets yeah exactly um So I'm starting to see that in order for us, I believe that for us to combat income equality is to unionize more workplaces and for every worker to be a part of a union um, or have some sort of organized workplace where the workers are standing in solidarity with one another. Yeah. Have you ever thought of being a part of like union organization organizer that kind of job do you get paid for that yes okay well you do have you ever thought of doing that that's literally what i've been doing for the past two weeks now of learning about it oh really yeah i'm i this this is a total new idea of mine but it's something like i think i'm interested in this if if this is something i feel is important and i enjoyed the book i read so much and i dislike seeing this absurd income inequality this obscene income inequality and if i see (laughs) if i under if i feel like if i like what i said i believe that in order to combat this is to put power into the workers that make everything in this country run and operate then if i see that as that important then i feel like i should be getting into this work i think Mm -hmm. that i'm interested um so this is so new. I'm happy to be talking about it now because I had mentioned like I'm trying to think about a career change. Yeah. So I've been looking at jobs every day while at work. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
paid to be doing that. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm talking to people in the field who are labor organizers, and that's been super insightful. They're giving me so many options. They're giving me so many resources to look into, and those resources so far, just in the past few days, have been really um, fruitful. So, Is that mostly what type of job you're looking into, or is there other stuff too? I mean, I would love to be in education, like again, yeah. but it's but, not paying. Right. I'm seeing that organizers are paid much more. more. Yep. So that would be great. What was the name of the book that you just read? It's called Beaten Up and Worked Down, I think. It's by Stephen Greenhouse. He's been like a labor reporter for the New York Times for like 20 years. Now labor reporters are few to come by (laughs) with, you know, low union membership across the United States. Um, Beaten Up, Worked Down, I think it is. Okay. What was the gist of the book? Oh, yeah. The rest of the title is The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. It talks about, you know, the labor union starting in the past. It talks about what was great is the author talked to real everyday people, like people who work at McDonald's, people who work at um, Amazon, people who've been working at McDonald's for 15 years and they've never gotten a raise and they're still on 725. And they have families. He talked about the fight for 15. So he, he, Stephen Greenhouse, this author, focused on different movements of the labor movement, the fight for 15, the tomato growers, um, farm, farm workers in, I feel like, Florida, L.A. service industry workers, talks about just the strategies of the labor organizers fighting for change in these different, you know, big union cities like L.A., Chicago, New York. Uh, he ends the book by, you know, how we can reclaim our power, what we need to be doing throughout his knowledge of history, you know, throughout his knowledge of being an author in this in this field of labor and also being a labor reporter. So Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. It was a great book. It taught me a lot. So what is it we need to be doing? I mean, aside from just generally forming more unions, is there... Any extra stuff to do? Well, I've thought about this personally. I think it helps to recognize first that we're all workers. Like, our, we, we need to have a working class consciousness. We have to understand that we're working class. If you have to work to live, you're working class. Yeah. And just recognizing our identity as workers, not consumers. Because in, in this society, in a consumerist society, a capitalist society, we're usually seen as consumers we are also the workers that make that product to be consumed. Right. We are a worker. And yeah. so recognizing that, standing in solidarity with that. And I think it's going to take a level. I've thought about this a lot. I think it's going to take a level of, I want to say organizing, but I mean, relating to someone else, relating to your coworker, talking to your coworker, being personable to your coworker. That idea of, you know, again, standing in solidarity, having to have social skills and and see this as this is a good place to work and we can make it better. Let's all stand together to to achieve that outcome. Yeah. How difficult do you think it is to form a union these days? Because I feel like uh, so many jobs, if the employees that work there are trying to form a union, the... uh, employer could just very easily, especially if it's like, you know, the, the very low paying jobs um, that would want to form unions the most, mm-hmm. they could just fire everybody and rehire mm-hmm. a new staff. Mm-hmm. Which that happens. Yeah. And it is scary. And I'm 
thankful you're asking this question after I've read a little of this book called The Troublemaker's Handbook, How to Fight Back Where You Work and Win, um, because it, it it's like everything you need to know about the, these questions. You want to at first understand where you work, if it's school or like state municipality, it's going to have different labor relations laws mm-hmm. than, um, you know, corporate based business. Yeah. I think it's going to be difficult. It's going to be an uphill battle. But what is expressed in this book is what's the cost if we don't do this? Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is work is everything. That's something that's also going back to why I think labor power is so important is work and our working lives make up the rest of our lives. Work give us our our, our purchasing power to pay for things. Yeah. Um what are we doing for 40 hours of our week every week? Working. What are we doing when we're not working? Commuting from work. Commuting to and from work. What are we doing when we're not commuting to and from work? We're talking shit about work. We're recuperating from work. We're yeah. making plans outside of work. We're having to shift plans because we have to work now. Yeah. Everything is revolved around working. And it seems to me that work is pretty important then. So This paints a very depressing picture in my mind of such a work-centered life. But yeah, yeah that's yeah. accurate. Yeah, but that, I mean, I yes, but we could also make work a great place, yeah, which true. is what people back in the 1920s and 30s did when things were looking real bleak in factories with horrible working conditions, horrible pay. That's where our social security came from. That's where our working, our minimum wage came from. Yeah. That's where our eight hour week came from. Still, it's archaic now, but it wasn't back then. Right. Yeah. Like the five day work week. That was like 1932 or something like that. That started. Yeah. But I, I think it's going to be, if you're trying to unionize at a place, your employee, your, your employer will always try to stop you Try to stop you because yeah. it's not in their best interest. It's always going to be a war and you just have to come to a truce. It's, it's power sharing. Yeah. I feel like um, it would be easiest to unionize a place that's really reliant on continuous production, like, I don't know, some important factory because mm-hmm. you, you can't afford even like a single day or a, a week of mm-hmm. nobody working. So like mm-hmm. if you're... All your employees at once just demand to unionize. Like you have to, you have to do it because you, you can't stop the steel mill. Yeah. But if it's like a Taco Bell, like who th- who cares if the Taco Bell is closed? Yeah. Taco Bell itself doesn't even care. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Good. That's a good point. So I I mean it's probably hard every way, but might might be something that always gets harder over time because I don't know what jobs are still in America that are that important. The need to have no downtime. Mm. I don't know. But and this is still related, but maybe far future or maybe not so far. But what do you think of like the future of work? Because you were just saying that it's very important in your life. And I guess this question could go a few ways. But I'm thinking of it in the way of, do you think that's necessarily like that has to continue being true? That work is an important part of human existence? Because I in an ideal sort of way would like to imagine a world where work is optional of course rather than foundational yes but that would deal that would deal with i feel like restructuring capitalism to a sense and that's a bigger that's a bigger bite to take right i think of automation yeah and what i worry about is 
automation can obviously produce the quota that a business or factory needs in a day yeah. without human labor. So in a socially a, soci- a socialist economy, more automation would be mean more time off for the actual human laborers at that place. Yeah. Because if these machines can do all the work it can do alongside humans, the humans, you know, if a chair factory needs to make 60 chairs in a day and the uh, the automation, the robots can make those chairs or even then some in less amount of time, yeah. way more, they meet their quota every day or then some, it would totally shift, it should shift how much work a, the human labor would need to be doing. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I think... Uh, I could go either way because I've heard I've heard people talk about this too, where automation too could mean like then you're fired, you know, yeah. you don't get a job. Right. All these robots are taking over. So I think just to talk about the future of work, where it's headed, automation is a big one. Mm-hmm. I don't know how capitalists are gonna, you know, they have a few choices ahead of them, and capitalists are bastards. Right. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't. I don't see them taking making the choice in the best interests of the working people that work for them. Yeah. The way I see it is um, either it's going to go very, very badly. Um, <laughs> if everyone just loses their jobs and there aren't any replacement jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, or like the government needs to step in and do something like, like I mentioned a lot, UBI. Because um, mm. then, you know, these the capitalists can just fire everyone and automate all of the jobs that you used to do. Mm-hmm. and you can continue earning money in places like of those robots but then i guess you have to get that money from the government because the companies aren't going to want to at least directly pay for your salary um, and that maybe is like the best case scenario is people get living wages without the work or with the need for work because i'd like to think some people disagree with me here but i would like to think that in a world where people don't have to work they still would yeah. Just on things that they care about. Yep. That's what Marx talks about. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, like you would you would see more passion projects and yep. more people just spending their time in ways mm-hmm. that are maybe more creative rather than manual labor. Yeah. I've talked yeah. to some people who's, who very much disagree and think that people would just be uh, doing nothing mm-hmm. with their time or, mm-hmm. you know, doing bad which, things which at the same time who cares right you know <laughs> like it, it just really is that idea is really fueled oh it's so ingrained with like, the you perspective of like work is the sole function of human beings on right. this planet yeah. like that's what makes you a worthwhile human worthwhile human being yeah is what you do for work yeah how much you work what so, where you work which you know that's obviously like you just said ingrained so right. Yeah, what's so wrong with the idea that you can just Exist. not do anything? Yeah. <laughs> Exist. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm? It seems beautiful. Exist and provide for just what you need. Yeah. What's cool, I mean, I would love to do a name drop here for anyone who's listening and interested. I've learned a lot about worker power. I've learned a lot about democratizing the workplace. I've learned a lot about socialism and capitalism from Richard Wolff. Mm-hmm. With two Fs, um, Richard Wolf with two Fs, incredible, an incredible mind. Um, and what's so incredible about him is he talks to you in layman's terms. He talks to you about all of these subjects where 
you know, you feel like you may not understand them. It's always been explained in a very complex way. He explains it in such an easy to understand way. He talks to you like your dad would. He talks to you like your grandpa would explaining these topics. Is he like, does he have videos or is he like an author? Oh, he's an author. He, he does. You can find, you can just Google Richard Wolf or on YouTube anywhere. He's got debates. He does debates. He actually has his own Patreon funded video program called Economic Update, talking Mm. about the economic lives of you, your children, your children's children, you know, just talks real. (laughs) And I mean, a lot of what I've been saying has, has been from yeah. from him are you familiar with robert reich at all it's yes he yes. was the um secretary of labor i see a lot Bill of his Clinton. tweets he, his tweets are yeah, great his tiktok he's is got, great okay he's got tiktok now he's got good, really, really good books and documentaries okay i think my favorite documentary by him is called inequality for all mm. that was like a 2008 or 2012 or something like that documentary he's also got another documentary that's kind of like version two it's like the same a lot of the same message same things but i don't think it's as good um but that one's called saving capitalism Mm. yeah he is a really great source of information and Mm -hmm. also frustration because yeah all the things he's like he's like i've heard stuff about him of like just criticisms about him about him oh okay just like his perspective on the economy oh okay yeah but i don't know enough to be like yeah that's Oh, yeah. I meant frustration more in the way that, like, he's, like, been saying these same things for, like, 20 years and nothing's ever happened. Yeah, like, yeah. So, it's, like, yeah. kind of sad. But... So, is Bernie Sanders. So, yeah. is every other good-intentioned yeah. <laughs> person in power. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to know the criticisms that people have of him, though. But mm. those are good documentaries. Um, oh, right. It was this was it this year, this spring, I think. There was that um, whatever documentary investigation about billionaires and how much they paid in taxes mm. over the past like 20 years it's like you've paid more taxes than elon musk did mm-hmm. or like than jeff bezos yeah do you have any thoughts this is maybe not exactly related to labor but do you have any thoughts on um like taxation and if we should change it or how we should change it oh yeah i think what's working now is not working right (laughs) (laughs) and i feel like when things aren't working a sane individual or sane society would try to find a different pathway to get to a better solution but this country is run by oligarchs yeah and i think it's congress if you look at congress and how many millionaires there are in congress they it's the majority of them you know they have private interests so when Bernie Sanders talks about getting big money out of our government, like I think that's a big one of the big first steps. Which yeah. who knows if we'll ever get there? Right. I think it will take. That's a large first. step. I think it will take dragging a guillotine, <laughs> yeah, to to the steps. Yeah, you know, and yeah, going back, what I wanted to say about work, what we were talking about, like how we right. think work will be like in the future. You know, will these capitalists with automation just fire everyone? I really hope to see a huge... I want, like, a um, general strike. Like, that would be great, which a general strike just means, like, multiple, you know, multiple companies... Across industries. Across industries just stop working. working. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't we already kind of have that? At least this year, it seems like. Yeah, thankfully... There's, like, a mass walkout, several of them over... 
it's mostly like food places i yeah. feel like that you, they're like we're hiring we'll pay like we'll actually pay 15 dollars an hour like we can't get any jobs and everybody's quitting their jobs or just not applying for jobs mm-hmm. so it feels like in, we have that partially maybe not as much as you'd like to see yeah and i feel like there's a difference between just like not going to you know being at a job anymore and showing a strike that's true, that's true. organizing a strike yeah um actually doing a and, demonstration rather than just not showing up yeah and i mean i i mean a general strike would be in the thousands of people hundreds of thousands yeah which would be great i think the strikes that do happen and they do happen it's just they're never covered you never hear of them because they don't want you to hear of them there's a point to that that you don't hear of them they're not covered on the major news sources there's a reason for that um but they do happen and again i just you can't keep funneling you can't keep adding income inequality income inequality income inequality you can't keep adding all of these bad things without something popping yeah without an issue bursting right without you can't expect things to something becoming infected to just you can't like bend it forever and never expect it to break i mean it's already infected it's already infected yeah i always ask myself i don't know when i'm gonna see it or what it's gonna look like or when it's gonna happen but i hope it happens within my lifetime i would love to be a part of it (laughs) and that's the other thing too that's one of the reasons why i want to be changing careers is i hope i can be part of this when it does happen i would want to be on this side of it when it happens and um it seems like making the the move from early childhood education to unions in a way if you know success if you're successful would actually be helping out that early childhood education yep helping unionize would be helping Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. people get higher income better Mm -hmm. better support for their Mm -hmm. children and even if i it would be great if i could find like a, a organizing union job in education yeah for teachers like a like a teacher's union is that not a thing that there is there is there many teachers unions yeah there are okay. um big ones um i'm trying to remember there's so many acronyms it's hard to remember them all and i just also want to say here i know i should probably just did this disclaimer earlier but i'm still learning about all of this oh yeah well i'm I not think... a complete expert yet but i'm very yeah. interested in becoming one <laughs> No, I think that's just a general general theme throughout every episode. Is right, that, uh, right. Ordinary people podcast. <laughs> yeah, pe- people aren't uh, expected to be experts. Okay. And if you're a listener right now, you shouldn't uh, expect that we are experts on anything we're talking mm-hmm. about. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's like, uh, I thought of a different name for the podcast, but it sounded too pretentious, maybe. It was like Habwissen, because, or Habwissen, because um, mm. it's like the German word for like, I guess like literally means like half knowledge. Hmm. It more like means like I'm like approximately accurate. Like don't <laughs> don't take me like a hundred percent at my word, but like yeah. the gist of what I'm saying is accurate. Yeah, yeah, kind of so, uh huh. Yeah, and I feel like that's a lot of this. A lot of this podcast is like the de- some of the details might be off, but you you get the the gist. Well, I hope you don't mind, but I want to make a point back to like what we were talking about probably thirty oh, 40 no. minutes you, ago, you where you talked about you know addressing young children their education and addressing like high schoolers or college students and this podcast of you know what you just said there was like you're not expected to be an expert yeah i think with teachers recognizing that you may not be the expert either Mm. and 
this teacher-student relationship can be us standing side by side and learning together. Yeah, yeah, like, like that the learning can, be can a go big both thing. ways. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I just wanted to. Oh yeah. Make that point because I it I felt necessary too. <laughs> no, I always thought that was the best sort of teacher experience when it felt more collaborative rather yep. than like just lecturing at you yep. or like delivering information from one end to the other. And that's called something. I'm forgetting what it's called, oh, okay. but it's called some. Um, gosh. I don't know what it's called. Yeah, it definitely has a yeah a, a name to it. Right, but I definitely felt that and. I mean, it's probably easier in some subjects than others, but like my drama class in high school, it definitely it was more of like a the teacher was involved with us rather than just directing us to do things. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it's more of a collaborative spirit mm-hmm. to the to the class. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I don't know, that's definitely needed for acting. Maybe mm-hmm. not as needed for math, but it would still be beneficial if math teachers could somehow do that in their classrooms. Maybe more of a difficult a challenge to yeah organize your classroom in such a way but mm. well sorry we can get back to the other yeah, to, to labor power yes um okay how do you feel about ronald reagan i um, don't like him because <laughs> i think in, in my view he might be the worst president yeah yeah especially reaganomics what, right the reagan he okay so you were talking about um unions being very um beneficial way to reverse or fix income inequality and i agree that would be helpful but um i think most of what ronald reagan did is like that's like the starting point of this horrible catastrophe of income stagnation for the Mm -hmm. middle class Mm -hmm. and wild income growth for the the upper class it was it was yeah i'd agree because and then i was wondering about the taxes right now um because it was something like when ronald reagan became president the tax rate for the rich was something around 75% and he got it down to like 27% mm. which was the lowest it had been ever mm-hmm. but the tax rate for the, the the rich right now is like 21% and the effective tax rate of course is 0% yeah. but the on paper tax rate is 21% so even like now is lower than it ever was back when yeah. Ronald Reagan cut it yeah. substantially cut yeah. it by 50% yeah to make everybody all of his friends super rich and Sell the false idea. And our economy is so much different than when Reagan was obviously. Yeah. I don't think there was such a plethora of billionaires. There was no Amazon. Right. There was no Elon Musk. Yeah. There were, well, wondering if there were fewer monopolies. Because that's another issue that I think plays into wealth inequality is monopolization. Mm -hmm. Unions are much less of a thing than they used to be. And trust busting is much less of a thing than it used to be. Where like you got two internet companies. Both those internet companies are more of like um, a duopoly where they kind of, in a lot of cities anyway, work hand in hand to like, okay, so these addresses are yours. These addresses are mine. So if you live in that apartment, you literally have one option. So it's effectively a monopoly. So like, you know, there's not even competition. They're just working together. They're colluding Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. block out their own separate monopolies. Well, monopolies go hand in hand with competition, right? Because monopolies will always try to suppress the competition suppress and grow into one like big conglomerate right yeah like the one with the most resources the most money can like outdo the rest that's competition right and so like the small businesses are always going to be in competition with like the bigger corporate yeah like amazon that's actually one of the main problems i have with the the model of capitalism in general is that i mean it i think by definition needs government regulation because so like 
I just fundamentally disagree with anybody who's like a free market capitalist. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, like, if you start off just blank slate somehow, imaginary setting, whatever company, by even if they're like quality company, they're the best one, they over time become the most um, successful, they'll have the most money, and therefore the most power to do what they want and suppress the other, their competition. If you don't have any regulation at all, that most successful company will buy out or mm-hmm. disrupt the other competition and become the monopoly. Yep. And then from then on, they'll just stop anyone from even entering that that field. Yep. So then you just got this snowball effect until it's the only snowball there is. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that is the economic functioning of capitalism. Yeah. Like capitalism functions to just keep... Making things bigger. Making things bigger, keep yeah. eating upon itself spreading out then into like global capitalism getting into global markets doing the same thing which is why i feel it's very important if we uh that we get back into the trust busting game and uh break up companies probably like google giant company not exactly a monopoly but still a company that has like a hundred different products Mm -hmm. and like amazon who's trying to do the same thing trying to have an amazon of every single thing you can imagine Mm. amazon home goods amazon internet amazon tv amazon shipping amazon Literally, if you go onto their website, Whoa. they've got categories for everything. Most of me, most of them you haven't heard of, but I didn't even know that they're trying. I to, didn't know they had all of that. Yeah, they're trying to get into every Doesn't single thing. Doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Amazon space, you know. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. What's his? What's his? Jeff Bezos. Yeah. What's his fucking thing called? <laughs> oh, um, it's, not, it's not SpaceX. No, that's Tesla's. Blue Origin. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a bit ridiculous how these companies will just get so inflated and. Um, take over everything and it used to be an idea that was in like 1905 or whatever with like uh, taft and like roosevelt where like you could still consider yourself a a capitalist and also want to break up the monopolies mm-hmm. but nowadays i feel like people who um call themselves capitalists are basically like don't laissez-faire don't know what it means <laughs> right yeah with the unionization do you foresee that actually trending upward do you see think that unions will get back into prominence yeah i think there's a lot of good there's there's a lot of good things happening in in the waves um for example now more than ever young people are much more open to the idea and wanting to join a union if they have the chance Hmm. um that's actually been measured in terms of just statistics more people would join a union if they could it's good to know and i guess this doesn't really I don't know how much this connects to union jobs, but now more than ever, young people favor socialism over capitalism. That's definitely true, yeah. So I think there are growing, there's growing awareness, which is always good. I think it just takes people like labor organizers to to take, to jump on those opportunities of seeing positive growth, yeah. seeing where they can um, seize the moment. Yeah. In high school whatever, like 10 years ago now, I had a, an economics teacher who had a poster of Ronald Reagan on his wall. And <laughs> I didn't realize at the time just how absurd that is, um, how you can be an economics pro- professor who Did he thinks, have like the American flag behind him too? Probably. I, okay. don't, I don't remember exactly. I knew it was just yeah. Ronald Reagan. But how you could be an economics professor and think trickle-down economics actually succeeded is beyond me. But, oh. well, maybe it succeeded for him. I don't know if he's super rich or not, but... Mm. Anyway, he had us write for one of our assignments, like a short 
essays on like the pros and cons or whatever, or maybe it's just the pros of an economic system we could choose, you know, capitalism, communism, or socialism. And literally everybody in the class, except for me, chose to write it on capitalism. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's the easiest one. That's the one the teacher was like, nudge, nudge. Like, yeah. Do capitalism. Uh, I was the only one who did socialism, and my teacher was very unhappy that I even did that. Yeah. Um, he didn't, like, give me an F or anything. He still graded me just fine. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like that was less of a thing even just 10 years ago that young people were gung-ho about socialism. But definitely nowadays have felt the difference. It's just like going on any social media site like Reddit or TikTok or whatnot. You see a bunch of stuff about how work is, at least the modern version of work and capitalism is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And there's like a kind of mass bubbling anger about it. Well, I have a few points in terms of like, do how do I see unions going in the future? I think that the more people are suppressed, the more people are pushed into living in poverty, are pushed into working three jobs and not still being able to afford things. When they're constantly pushed into corners, there's going to be a fight. Yeah. So again, like you, like I was saying, you can't keep overpouring on the income inequality before something pours over or something something bubbles something pops um so i think that's gonna happen i don't know when i don't know what it's gonna look like whatever and then i also see like you just said um just kind of a growing distaste for these systems i'm seeing that now with like just simply on my facebook feed on my instagram feed I like to post, my friends know that I love to post so much like shit posting of political stuff and capitalism and whatnot. I also do try to like educate along the way. Yeah. But from that, I'm, I'm seeing more of like my actual friends talk about it, think about it, post about it. I'm seeing other people that I don't usually engage with post about things, think about them more. You know, I think that comes with like they're being pushed in a corner. Yeah. Again, so I, I, I have faith that when people are pushing a corner, they will fight back. Right. And going into what you're talking about, your economics teacher, Richard Wolf, who I spoke about earlier, right. he went to so many Ivy League schools. He went to like two or three for economics. And even at the Ivy League schools in his economics courses, he's like, why the fuck aren't we learning about Marx, who was one of the most influential, right. philosophical, economic educators of their of their time he's like why aren't we learning about marx and professors were scared because of the red wave yeah professors were either forced to not threatened to not teach that or fired did he go to school like during the heights of mccarthyism or something like that maybe um he's an older gentleman um yeah so i would say probably around those years yeah because I imagine, at least from the way so many people seem to talk about higher education these days, like it's been completely co-opted by by the libs or whatever they think, mm. that um, it seems to me like nowadays you would have college professors more likely to teach about Karl Marx mm. than well, I, in I the past. No, yeah, I wouldn't know either. I haven't taken. Well, I did take an ec- economics class last year, but my teacher was crazy, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> a different. Yeah, one. it'd be also interesting crazy. to know if there's any talk yeah, about it. How that's changed over yeah history over time because yeah i don't know you would maybe imagine that if there's a uptick in young people more into socialism that that might correspond with an uptick in teaching about socialism in Mm. schools either 
which which way that goes i don't know mm-hmm. either if like they're being taught about it so that they like it or they like it so the teachers decide to start mm-hmm. teaching about it i mm-hmm. don't know but uh, yeah i think there's a lot of individuals out there who are teachers who understand this and will teach but it's i don't think it's big across the board you know it all depends like what the school district i mean just the individual really it comes down to the individual teacher yeah that's true um and also not only that but you could be an individual teacher who wants to teach these things but you have a bad administration that would and i didn't mean to say red wave i meant to say red scare red scare yeah yeah Yeah, and i guess less likely in high schools because they're kind of ruled by uh conservative um school boards and curriculum um, Mm -hmm. the parents of the suburbs who don't want anything having to do with the c word in their <laughs> yeah schools it blew my mind where my friend who's like super into politics labor organizing they went to school for this they have years of experience it's insane i learned so much from this person they told me like republicans will groom their candidates by putting them through like school board positions oh. so being part of the school board is how they like groom for further public office oh that's interesting Mm. so i'm like "Mm." (laughs) be cool to be part of the school board that's something that i could do you know as well i wanted to ask also you mentioned 30 percent higher pay and also you mentioned health care but what are the other benefits of being in a union are those like the big ones yeah health care a pension oh right i mean and i think a pension I'm I'm wondering if a 401k is the same as a pension or if you're in a union job you get a pension rather than you get a 401k or if they're I th- I feel like my dad has a 401k and he has a pension. Yeah, I think they're different. They are different. I don't I've haven't had either of them. So okay. I um I don't know. Yeah, so a pension Yeah, cuz I think a 401k is the is the thing where you put money into it for your whole career and your employer I think typically matches some percentage of what you put into it. And then the pension is that's money that you get after retirement, and it is based off of how many years you worked there. Hmm. 401k is like constantly accumulating over time, where the pension is more of a, a retirement bonus. Yep. Which for, you continue, for loyalty. Which, which you yeah, continue yeah. to get, right? Yeah, you get you it for the rest of your life. You continue to get the rest life. of like, your life. It's like 401k money. is just what you get at the end of ending your employment with them. Well, 401k is like a bank account that you, yeah. you have always been putting money into yourself. Yes. From from your paycheck, like non-taxed money, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and pen- once you're done working, you can take that yeah, money well, for retirement, yeah, yeah. your retirement expenses. And then pen- pension, that didn't come from you. That's just like money straight from your employer Yeah. for, you know, a lot yep. years of good service. Yep, yep, yep. And yeah. you can, in some places, you have to work so many years Before to be able to get, get this pension. Yep. Yeah. Where, yeah, and that's the difference too. Because like most places, you just start with a 401k. If it's like, you know... Uh, office job or whatever you just have a 401k from day one yeah or a roth ira or whatever i'm sure there are so many others that i'm not mentioning um with like benefits from the union but i feel like day-to-day ones just knowing you know you can support your family knowing you can go on vacations and afford them is there um anything like being resistant or like having dif- more difficulty firing you or laying you off if you're in a union or something like oh that. absolutely yeah. that's what my dad does he's a union steward oh, okay so he handles grievances um yeah. something that happened at work what happened at work well it was with management disrespecting the contract hmm. you know union stewards focus on the contract with both entities you know this person was in the contract management is not management keeps will always try to keep 
pushing pushing yeah. pushing the envelope and that's what's great about a union is like you're always going to have a steward there yeah. who is the mediator right you've got other people like yeah backing it's you kind up. of like having a lawyer at your job essentially oh, okay my dad has helped many workers keep their jobs does does being a union steward involve like law or like law, having a law degree or anything no. like that? Okay. No. So it's like not actually lawyer, but like lawyer-esque yes. yeah. duties? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just pretty much like focusing on the contract that both right. management and the employee, employee signed. Yeah. And then making sure both entities hold up their end of what they signed. Yeah. Okay. Well, I said I wanted to keep it uh, yeah. two hours. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we'll probably wrap it up now. But yeah. before we end, one thing that I like to end off on maybe half the time or so is getting a recommendation of usually a book, but it could also be something like a TV show or whatnot from you. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned, what was his first name? It was Wolf. Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf. You mentioned Richard Wolf. Um, does he have any specific books that you recommend? Um, he has a few. I know he's he just came out with another one. It's about capitalism. I'm forgetting the actual title, um, but I bought one of his books that's titled understanding socialism Mm. so he talks about socialism where it came from its history yeah um so i have that one i would recommend his economic update which you can find on youtube yeah because i feel like one of the problems about older people such as people my parents age or older who immediately like go on alert when they hear socialism yeah i think part of that is there's um different meanings socialism has taken on over time i feel like Mm -hmm. what i mean by the term socialism is different from what my dad Mm -hmm. means when he says socialism Mm -hmm. so which he'll talk about that in the book and how it's just been badly used thrown in the mud weaponized yeah yeah richard wolf economic update literally anything by him is great um whether you find like an update or not update a debate or an interview Mm -hmm. on youtube of his any book that he's written, I would like to get his new one, which is about like the failures of capitalism and why capitalism fails every four to seven years, like on average, every like four to seven years, it, yeah, yeah, it crashes, it fails, um, and why we keep sticking to something that keeps failing people, yeah. millions of people. Anyways, side note, but <laughs> the labor book I just read was great. Beaten up, worked down the, the past, present, and future of American labor. Do you ever read any fiction? <laughs> No. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind, but a lot of my... All the books right now in my queue are all non-fiction. nonfiction. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like to read a lot of nonfiction too, but I think usually I try to read a bit of both. Like some yeah. I just someone read... told me, like, you need to read fiction because I get a little too worked up in my nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes reading too much fiction can be too depressing. Yeah, these... that's exactly what they mean. Yeah. Like, cool cool it down with some fiction. Just, yeah, just every once in a while. Read a, read a book that <laughs> yeah. you can just simply enjoy. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it helps too because when I read nonfiction, I want to like completely absorb it, so it takes me longer. Mm-hmm. Fiction, I can just kind of get yes. through really quick. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, and uh, thank you for listening.